Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Today we are looking at the church of Philadelphia. That's the last book in the Bible. If you are not that familiar with the scripture yet, that's okay. We all been there. Uh, but the best thing to do is just to open up your Bible and follow along as we look at this passage of scripture and as I've been preaching on the seven churches of Revelation, we are on the last one. This is the seventh one. Five of them had warnings. Two of them had no warnings. And so I've been saying, and because of what it says in Scripture in, in chapter 1, where we see that the Lord is, is walking among the churches and he's evaluating them to see how they're doing. The churches are the lampstands, the Stars are the leaders or the elders, the pastors of those churches. And the job of the church is to hold up the light and to share the light with others, not just to keep it to themselves. And so the church is an institution that God has given to the world that holds and shares the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus being the center of, of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, there is a central person, and that central person is Jesus Christ. So he becomes very important person to the church, one that we just shouldn't just find information about, but one that we really come to know and love and serve. And so far of the five churches, the warnings were, the first church was declining love, and all these churches in some way diminishes the light of the gospel by the problem and the warning they had. A second church was allowing truth to stop, tolerating bad doctrine or teaching. The third one is compromising with sin within the church. And then, of course, the fourth was that of complacency meaning to uh, be self-satisfied without being aware of any possible danger. And then the last warning was that of the church of Laodicea, and that was spiritual indifference, where one a group of professed believers or the church becomes indifferent, lack of interest in the things of God, lack of care for the things of God, lack of concern for the things of God. And of course, that kind of attitude to the Lord himself is nauseating because that's lukewarmness and that is the only thing, uh, it's the thing that God wants to vomit out of his mouth because it's so nauseating to him. So this Lord's Day, I would like to look at the second of the two churches identified in Revelation that had no warnings and no condemnations. And it should be of great interest, interest to us again that if a church has no warnings or no condemnations, then we want to see what's going on in that church so we can become like that church. Again, Jesus Christ is the sovereign head of his church, and is walking amongst his people. And that means he is personally present. He is in their mists. He knows what's going on. And so, therefore, he is examining their spiritual condition to see how they are doing. 
and he does that. So all these these messages in Revelation are pertinent to our own examination and evaluation. Now, before I look at the text, Philadelphia was a city located approximately 28 miles southeast of Sardis in the area of Asia Minor. It was founded by Attalus in 140 BC. Attalus was called Philadelphos, which meant brother lover. And so the city was named after him. And it really, Philadelphia means the brother, the uh, city of love or the city of brotherly love. And so Philadelphia was a city of tremendous potential in as much as its mission in earlier days had been to spread Hellenism to the area beyond. It was therefore referred to as with a door of opportunity to promote the Greek culture over against the Hebrew culture. Hellenism is actually the name we give to the manifold achievements of the Greeks in social and political institutions, in the various arts, in sciences and philosophy, in morals and religion. And so that was the mission of this particular city to kind of have its own culture, and that's what their job was. So there was definitely some tension between the Hebrews and uh, the Greeks in this city, and of course between the Hebrews, Greeks, and the Christians that were in this city. It was famous for its vineyards and hot springs, and the city was destroyed by an earthquake during the reign of Tiberius in A.D. 17, and earthquakes actually were frequent in this area, making it very unstable. That means many people lived in the rural areas around Philadelphia instead of in the actual city itself, and sometimes the city was called Little Athens, because of the prevalence of idols and paganistic gods within the city. Dionysus was the god of wine. That was the main deity of that city. And so the church of Philadelphia really had enjoyed freedom from pagan persecution and from heresies within the church. But, as was true in the church of Samarina, the Jews had created difficulties for the Christians in Philadelphia. And so that's the background as we look at the text this morning. And as it always starts out, the church needs to know first the character of Christ. Christ is the center. He's not only evaluating them, but he's giving them back who he is and his character. And that's what we see in verse number 7 of chapter 3, but before I read that, let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning for bringing us here together. And I pray, Lord, as we do open up the word, and Lord, we are thankful that we're able to do that, to look at the very scriptures that has been given and protected all these years by the Holy Spirit, that we can rely and depend on them. They come from a God who tells us the truth, who cannot lie. And so, Lord, we can rely completely upon them and what, they, what it says. So I pray as we look at this text this morning, it would impress upon our own heart 
who you are and how these Christians way back then were not at all given a warning because of what they were carrying out in their small location in that part of the world. Lord, help us to become like them and take on their character because we know it pleases you, Lord, and honors your name. And it also keeps the light of the gospel shining brightly no matter what evil is going on around it. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing we see is the character of Jesus, verse number 7. And the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this. So the Lord's character in verse number 7, is put before the evaluation of of the church that Christ's attributes have become something, have something to do with what the evaluation, evaluation of the church is. So the center of the church's life is Christ. And what is he here? He's holy. See, Jesus Christ here is linked with the Old Testament designation of God, which demands us, demands really us of God's, reminds of of God's crowning attribute, that he is holy, that he is the holy one of Israel. And of course, this word means separated from what is common, that God is not like us, that he is completely separated from us in his pure and holy and divine and merciful and loving and gracious character. So none but God is absolutely holy. In this context, it actually speaks of the Messiah. Holiness here is not necessarily emphasizing Christ's sinless nature as much as it is emphasizing the role of God's servant who is specifically set apart by the Father for the sake of the establishment of the church. It's like in the book of Acts where it says, For truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Again, it mentions that Jesus is not only holy, but he is a servant. And then also in Acts chapter 4, verse 30 while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So this, this holy th- thought of Jesus being separate from humanity and yet God himself and then coming in his first coming as a servant is vital to the thinking of these Christians. When Jesus uh, preached the real cost of believing in him and following him in the Gospel of John in chapter 6. And the rest of the crowd left him after preaching a very clear cost of being a believer. Jesus turned to his disciples and said to them, will you leave also? And of course, the famous saying of Simon Peter, he says in John 6, He answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
you have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So that becomes very significant in the mind and hearts of all believers that God is holy, and because he is holy, he is just. And because he is holy and just, he must hold people responsible for their sin because of God's character. But a second thing in Revelation uh, that it says here in chapter 3 is that he is also true. He is holy and he is true. That Christ, in other words, is the real deal, absolutely faithful to his word and to his Father and to the plan of God. So the terms holy and true apply to Christ, but in Revelation, actually, chapter 6, verse 10, they are used to describe God. When it says in that passage of Scripture, it's talking about the fifth seal, there was a cry for vengeance from the martyred saints that triggered the outpouring of God's wrath to vindicate the ones who died for Christ. And here is a really a call that begins the catastrophic judgment from God upon the earth where in the fifth seal of Revelation 6.10 it says, And they cried out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Those were the martyrs of who believed in Christ and were killed for their faith during the uh, time of God's wrath being poured on the earth. So the fifth seal really de- delineates the large-scale persecution of follower, the followers of Christ during the tribulation period, and perhaps uh, which really, really pre- uh, prepares us for what comes next that is followed suddenly by the great catastrophe which leads the world to recognize this judgment of God because they are persecuted uh, because they persecuted the followers of the Lamb. That's why the judgment would come. So these two attributes, these two characteristics together may suggest that because God is holy, that he is a God of wrath. Holiness implies purity. It implies moral perfection. It, It implies absolute uprightness. Therefore, God is against impurity and immorality and all unrighteousness. And because God is true, he said he would do something about all these evils and judge and avenge as he needs to. Also, his name answers to him being true when we think of the Thessalonians, they turned away from idols, the Bible says, to serve the living God. So living is not only, it not only means that he's alive, but he is active, that he's involved, that he's personal. He is the God who orders all things in heaven and on earth. Of course, living is given to contrast God with the dead idols of all these regions who neither can be alive or active or present. They're just dead. They simply do nothing. 
And, and that's why when you, when you go back into the Old Testament, uh, for example, if you go back to Psalms, you're going to find when you're reading through the Psalms, the Bible's always bringing up the character of idols, whether it's an idol that somebody actually carves out of wood or, or makes out of stone or an idol you make of your, in your own imagination. It doesn't matter because you're worshiping something other than the true and living God. Just for example, let's take our Bible and turn to Psalm 115 uh, and just notice what it says there about uh, people who called these idols gods, but there are no gods at all. In fact, Psalm 96, verse 5, you don't need to turn there. It says, for all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. See, the Lord did something that they could never do. But in Psalm 115, in verse 4 to 7, notice what it says. It says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Verse 8, those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. See, it's really the ironic, it's it's really irony here where, where it's these people make these things and actually have some kind of mystical things connected to them, and they worship them, they bow down to them, they, they serve food to them, they pray to them, and they are nothing. In fact, it says in the New Testament, behind all idolatry, whether it's visible or imagined, is all satanic, because Satan wants to rob God of worship and glory. So any way he can do it, he will do it. And of course, in Thessalonians, again, it says there that he is not, they, they turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. Those two words, again, connected together in, uh, because it's contrasted with the false. The false idols are contrasted with the true God because God is the real and the genuine God. Like Jeremiah 10.10 10 says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. So this further means that, as we even consider the Thessalonians, that they turned to the true and the living God, and it affected the totality of their religious life. It totally moved their social construct to a different place and changed them where they gave up all the old idols and the religious system that they had to now know they can serve the God who actually created the heaven and the earth. And so it moved them into a new mode of existence. And of course, in the present, they were able to worship God and they now had a hope for the future, which they never understood or experienced or could have experienced with any kind of pagan idolatry or any kind of imagined God that one would serve on this side of eternity. So he is true. And then back in Revelation chapter 3, verse number 7, he who has the key of David. Now that's very interesting. Anyone who holds keys to something 
also has the ability to open or close something. The key of David, Jesus, of course, faithfulness is described in relationship to possessing the key of David. The key in David's time, King David's time, had been given to Eliakim, and it was a symbol of authority. Eliakim was over the house of David. In fact, Eliakim's authority was transferred from Shebna, who was removed as an unworthy, unworthy of an office of chamberlain and treasurer. And we find this in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 20 to 22, where it says, Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And it says, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open. So Eliakim was the son of Hilkiah who succeeded Shebna as governor of the palace and grand visor under Hezekiah the king. And the function of his office is that he is the treasurer. He is the steward. He is, the, in other words, household manager of everything. If he opened something, it would be open. If he shut something, it would be shut. And, of course, he opened and shut the door that led to the king's treasurer. It's mentioned like three times in Isaiah that Eliakim was over the household, over the household, over the household. So at his installation, he is clothed with a robe and girdle and the insignia of his office and having the government committed to his hand is the father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Now, that is directly connected to Christ. See, the key of the house of David is laid on his shoulder, and he alone has power to open and to shut, this being symbolic of his absolute authority as the king's representative. Christ is the heir of the throne of David. And he will replace all the less worthy stewards who have abused the trust in God's spiritual house. And he will, as it says in the Gospel of Luke, reign over Israel forever. This is what it says in Luke, right? The, the first, when you read the Christmas story, you start with Luke chapter 1. It says there, and he will be great, talking about Jesus, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So in other words, Jesus keeps the keys of the kingdom of God, both the earthly and the heavenly, and he opens and shuts according to his will. Now that's what it is saying in Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 7 where you notice it says there that not only does he has the, the David, 
he is part of the characteristic that he has is who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. In, in other words, that he has authority, Jesus has the sole authority to open things and to close things, to open doors and to close doors to the kingdom. All that rests with Christ. He decides who is and who is not to be admitted. And this power, of course, is described in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, where it already said the statement that Jesus had the keys of heaven, the keys of hell and death. See, an open door means a sure entrance into the messianic kingdom. Despite the Jewish opposition that wants to close the door of the gospel and any opposition that would come against the church that wants to snuff the light and close the door and shut down the testimony of Jesus Christ, right? These Jews failed to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah and therefore wanted to snuff the light. But the bottom line is that Christ, the true David, has the key of the supreme government upon him. He has the absolute authority to open and to close the door to the kingdom, and no one can countermand him. There is no one who has the ability to countermand him. In fact, when you read other passages of scriptures, like in uh, the book of Hebrews, it also communicates a truth that the Old Testament priests could not open the door of the holy place completely or permanently where it tells us there that the Holy Spirit is to signify this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed or has not yet been opened. And why is that? Because the blood of calves and goats uh, could only temporarily bring someone into the presence of God as they had their sins cleansed, but the only one who's going to open the way completely to the holy place is going to be Christ himself, where the Bible says, and if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled those who had been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve again the living God. So who opens the door of the gospel of the kingdom? It's Jesus Christ, and he does it by the sacrifice of his own body upon the cross where he sheds his blood, fulfills all the types and shadows of the Old Testament, and he breaks away tears the veil between the sanctuary and the innermost sanctuary, the holy place, so people have access to God as they come to Jesus Christ to be forgiven of that sin. So he opens that door. Another thing that Christ does is that he opens and doors for us providentially. So that's another thing to consider is that Christ is the providence of our lives. He is our Lord and Master and Savior. 
So what we call chances are not chances. The opportunities that come to us are God-given opportunities. See, the doors that open before us, he flings open. And the doors that are shut, he bars and bolts that we can't open them ourselves. So God providentially works within our lives. The Apostle Paul asked the Colossian church to pray for him, and this is what he asked them to pray. Pray at at the time, the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word, that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, which for which I have also been imprisoned. So again, the Lord is about to evaluate the church, and before he does that, he lets them know about who he is, that he is the one who has the keys that open and shuts, that he is the one who has... Uh, who's the true God, who is the holy God. And so, in other words, because of who he is, you ought to listen. The church ought to listen. You ought to listen. And so it comes to the next point, and that's the condemnation, and there is none. Jesus, the one who evaluates, doesn't condemn the church for anything. His skillful eye finds no criticism for this church. So what is his condemnation? Well, in verse number 8 of chapter 3, it says, And I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Now, what is interesting about this passage of Scripture is that this church is being described for us by the Lord as a church that really has no, it's not large. It's a small group of believers. And he says in verse number 8, I know your deeds. I know what's going on with you in your heart and in the midst of your congregation. And, and what he does, he actually gives three characteristics of their faithfulness. You, you know what they, the crowning attribute for every Christian is? Just be faithful. Just be faithful to the things of God. In fact, that's what this church is. This is a patient, faithful church. And look what he says in verse number 8. He says, he, he, he identifies their faithfulness as dependence because you have little power. Now, this probably does mean that the church had little influence in their area, little weight in their area. The members probably were of the lower classes. So this church was not large. It wasn't strong. It wasn't influential. They actually drew their strength from the Lord himself. They learn that when they are weak, God is strong, and God's power is perfected in weakness. When we know that we are weak, you, you learn to depend on the one who is strong. And you're not, as long as you know you're weak, then God will be strong. When you think you're strong, then God is not usually working. You are. And you usually get caught in the flesh. So we may also draw out the observation that to bear quietly may be just as much as a divine calling as to be 
have a large hope on grand things that are happening. The Christians are comforted with the assurance that the design of their enemies would not be permitted to succeed, but not based on their largeness or their influence or their power based on solely upon the power of God himself. See, their cause would survive, in other words, that many from that city would continue to enter the Redeemer's fold. And the reason why, because God is the one who opened the door to the gospel, that people were going to come. People you would never expect are going to come into the kingdom, and they're going to be part of the church of God. All right. In fact, we kind of get to that in a second. But if you notice the second thing he commends them of, their devotion in verse number 8, because you have kept my word. See, in obedient in, in spite of being little, they would not let go of what they learned from the Lord's word. They were not interested in entertaining new beliefs. They were not interested in the idolatry that was all around them. The strength of the church does not consist of worldly wealth or wisdom, or power, but it's faithfulness to the word of God. See, this, this is what God commends them for. You're little, but you're faithful to the word of God. The little power of this kind can affect, have great effects against the united powers of earth and hell. This kind of little power Little strength is usually exercised with full faith in prayer. And that's what Christ prized with them. That they were a church that not only were faithfully dependent on Christ because they didn't have a lot of power themselves, and they were faithfully devoted to the word of God, to Christ's word. And then in verse number 8, Another thing he mentions there, because you have not denied my name. You were were faithfully determined not to deny Christ's name in an area that Christ was not popular to be named. It could have meant death for them, that these believers were firm in their purpose, will, and intention to stick to God's word and to keep holding to the correct teaching about Christ and to the correct message of the gospel, even when under the pressure of the government and the Jewish opposition to denounce Jesus as Lord, they didn't do it. They just kept faithful. Sometimes that's all God calls us to do on this side of eternity. And that's what this church is commended for. No warnings, no condemnation. A small little group of people, and all that they did is kept faithful to the word of God and did not deny the name of Christ. I, you know what I consider these people? Special warfare operators. They were, they were the people that were taking the fire, man. And they did not budge. And the Lord, that pleases the Lord. Because they're putting all their truth in what God says in the word of God. Because it's not just the present. It's always about the future, too, for a believer. We have a hope that nobody else has. See, 
remember, this faithfulness has always been the test of divine blessing rather than success. We put so much stock on results and success because we have such a corporate business mindset. But the Lord, there, there's no, they would flunk every successful test you can give them. But for the Lord, they were faithful to the word and to not deny his name. And the Lord says, that's what I called you to. And because I called you to, you're not strong, but I'm strong. And I'm going to fight on your behalf. So this also could be how God's power is displayed in their weakness by bestowing upon them gifts that only God himself can give them. And what are they? Well, there's several. Actually, two bestowal of divine gifts. One in verse number eight, it says, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. In other words, they had the gift of undeniable entrance into access to God and the kingdom of God itself. No matter what happened to them, no one could shut the door to the kingdom of God. Also, they proclaimed the message of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that unlocks the promise of the kingdom to all who repent and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They had that open door to them. Even in the midst of this this wicked uh, culture that they lived in, this idolatrous culture, God says, listen, I opened the door to the gospel there. When you speak the gospel, people are going to get saved. This small group of people bring people to Christ. A second divine gift is that of vindication in verse number 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who says that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now, this is interesting. So, my friends, it's it's an incredible statement that the Lord will declare that his children were not to be blamed or be guilty of lying, but will make the real liars acknowledge that the believers in Jesus Christ were right. That Jesus also makes them bow low before them and then makes them know whom God really loves. And who does he love? Not the Jewish liars who belong to the Satan's gatherings, where it says in the text. And that's anybody who is against Christ. They don't hold to the word and the correct view of Christ. They don't acknowledge Christ as Savior and Lord, actually deny him. Well, that's the synagogue of Satan. That's That's Satan's message. He wants to overthrow what God's established. But what is very interesting about this is that, hey, listen, If these Jews, who are not really Jews because they're not really converted to Christ, are coming against you and they're part of the synagogue of Satan, this is what I'm going to do. Christ really says that he literally will give some of those who are of the synagogue of, of Satan, meaning that he will give them over to the believers as converts. Okay, you want to be against me? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to save you. 
I'm going to save you. I'm going to bring the message of the gospel to those who hate me the most, and I'm going to save you. That's what I'm going to do. Didn't that happen to the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul came to destroy the church, to kill believers, to drag them into prison. And what does that God do? Saves them. All right? So in other words, when God opens a door, don't ever think that this person won't get saved or that person could never, ever come into the kingdom of God. Because if God opens a door, and believe me, the door is still open to the gospel. We're, we live in the age of grace. The gospel's still going out. Matter of fact, you're sitting here now because the gospel's still open. All right? Those who've come to know Christ, who repented of their sin and believe in him. See, the Lord still has the door open, and people are still coming, and those we think would never come are coming. And he, the Lord says, I'm going to save them, and they're going to bow down to you, and you know what they're going to say? You know what, you guys, you were right. We were wrong. Right? And doesn't that, isn't that what happens when you get saved? All the things you thought about God were all wrong. All the things you thought about how to be right with him and how to go to heaven, well, you didn't even know how to do that. Or the directions on how to get there, you didn't know. And then you come to and see the word of God, and you say, you know what? I was wrong. God was right. Because God speaks the truth to us. Christ also promises that because they have been faithful to endure persecution just as he did, he will be faithful to keep them from the hour of testing, which is about to come upon the whole world. See, so, so this will be the day of humiliation for all religious and non-religious believers. In other words, God will honor believers before the face of unbelievers. And that is said in many places, several places in Scripture. But another divine gift that God gives them is that of exemption. And if you notice in verse number 10 of chapter 3, it says, Because you have kept my word, the word of my perseverance, I will also keep from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, see, the Lord... The Lord's way of delivering those who keep his word is that he shuts them away from the temptation that comes upon others. In other words, you did not go beyond what was written in the word of God. You stayed within the parameters of scripture. You did not allow the world system to press you into its thinking. You did not hold to the traditions and the commandments of men. And because of that, I will exempt you from the hour of testing. Now, this refers to the tribulation period. That world. And I believe here the church will not go through the tribulation period. And I, I believe, therefore, will be exempt from the trials of tribulation. But I also know there are others who believe that the church will go through the tribulation. But the point is, is that whatever place you land... God provides the protection. He's the one who keeps his people and keeps them from that particular time. That's why I do believe that when the day of the Lord comes, which was spoken in the Old Testament, the first thing that triggers that is the rapture of the saints into the air to meet the Lord in the air and be with him forever. So the Lord doesn't come first to the earth. We meet him in the air, and then we go to heaven with him which triggers, at that point, uh, the start of God's wrath 
identified by the apostasy, the, the people that were holding to the Bible now are, and say they believe in Jesus, are leaving and apostatizing, uh, saying they don't believe it by their actions. And then, of course, the revealing of the man of sin, Satan, who's going to exalt himself as God. He's revealed to the world and revealed in a good way as a political leader and as a someone who can solve problems without war, someone who eventually pro- proclaims himself as being so magnificent that he would proclaim himself to be God, sits on the throne uh, in Jerusalem and, and gets people to worship him. So consequently, the coming of Christ for the church is followed by an extended period of time in which God releases all the judgments within the tribulation period. God's children, the church in whom he loves, will be caught up to himself before the seven-year period. That's what I believe the scripture teaches. He, then then he, uh, Christ will come the second time with his mighty angels and his saints uh, to pronounce and execute judgment. That's when he actually comes to the earth uh, after the tribulation and, of course, sits on the throne of David in Jerusalem and rules the world, and we rule the world with him. And that's before the new heaven and new earth. So he is saying to these believers, listen, this is your future. This is what I'm going to protect you from. This is what you're going to be part of. You're not going to be part of the, the, this extreme test that falls on the ungodly world and the judgment that falls on them. I'm going to rescue you from that. And you're going to be with me in whom I love. And that's part of how God shows his love to them by that rescue. Not only rescuing them in salvation and the forgiveness of sins, but rescuing them from this severe time of trouble and tribulation that will come on the whole world that has not yet happened. And then, of course, what's back in Revelation, verse 11, what's the counsel that Jesus gives to them? Look what he says in verse 11. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now, of course, this here, uh, in other words, the, the command was for them and for us to remain ready, faithful, committed. The Philadelphians are told to hold fast what they have until Christ comes, that he will take them to a place where no one can take their crown away. And, of course, the crown here is is not a symbol of royalty, but a floral wreath which was placed on the heads of the victors, whether in a winning a race or a conquering general. So the crown here is an emblem of victory, of festivity, of joy that he promised to them that the one I give you, no one will be able to take away. And then he gives them a challenge and a promise in verse 12 and 13 of Revelation. And the concluding challenge is, he, is to those who overcome, to those who persevere to the end with God's help because he keeps his word and he does not deny his name. Those people, remember, he is a God who is holy and true and he is a God who keeps his promises. So he gives them three promises to hold on to while they wait for him. And verse number 12, it's this. 
I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go from it anymore. In other words, a pillar is uh, in the spiritual temple of God. And even the, the earthly temple of God, pillars are really strong symbols of strength and stability. And remember, historically, earthquakes dispersed these people, leaving their homes uh, their home situations unstable. And so we look here is that God is saying to them, I'm going to give you a permanent, stable dwelling that you're going to be part of. The promise to the overcomer is that they will have a secure and a permanent place in the temple of the New Jerusalem, that all true believers will enjoy a place in God's very presence forever in which all the saints on earth one day will be eternally secure with God eventually in the new heaven and the new earth. So the promise, first promise he gives them is the promise of, of stability and a permanent residence. Second promise in verse number 12 is that of ownership. He says, and I will write on him the name of my God. See, all true believers will receive a permanent name tag, in a sense, written with God's own hand that will include the following information, the name of my God. The, the name tag depicts ownership, ownership for his faithful bond servants, that they are sealed with the seal of the Father, the seal of the Son, the seal of the Holy Spirit, and it depicts an ownership and a security that God will protect and keep those who bear his name, who don't deny his name, that God's name is written on them, and in, of course an indication of their eternal relationship with them. Nobody can take that away. And then a last promise he gives them in verse 12 is that it says there, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven, from my God and my new name, that they are guaranteed citizenship. All true believers will have a permanent residence written with God's own hand that will include the following information. I will write on them the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. That means they have complete residence and access to the city all the time. Now, where does that all leave? It really leads to Revelation chapter 21, verse number 3, where it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among men, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That's the promise that we have, that God's presence in the city is the greatest blessing that you and I will receive from God, that God is not just a visitor, nor are we just visitors, but we are permanent occupants. We are there so that God's people may live in his presence and enjoy him forever without all the stuff that we deal with here on earth. There will be no death. There will be no dying, there will be no sorrow, there will be no tears, there will be no pain. We're going to enjoy the presence of God without the curse of sin being in our midst, and it's going to be 
an incredible time, actually an indescribable time. I don't even have human words to describe it. So the conqueror will be given the assurance that he belongs to God and to the new Jerusalem and to Christ and that he will everlastingly share in all the blessings and privileges of all three forever. So that's what the Lord tells this small church that had really no strength, but had the power of God behind them in everything that they did. And how does this passage end? In verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, the church, Christ really bids every church to heed what is said in each church and then to examine ourselves appropriately based on what the Lord has said. Now, I don't know about you, but this is this is of great encouragement to believers to, to, to keep going keep being faithful uh, no matter what may come into your life, no matter what issues or problems or the way our life may change in our, our country or in our circumstances, just keep faithful. That is what the Lord tells them. And in doing so, all these prom- promises and privileges of being a citizen of the kingdom of God being owned by God, and of course being a permanent residence within the place that God dwells is the greatest promise and blessing that you and I could ever hear with our ears, think with our minds, and uh, have the privilege of, of saying that's, that's mine. I, I, that's, that's our promise. And that's something that will keep us ever faithful no matter what. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, Lord, your word again defines things for us that our minds could have never conceived. And we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who tells us the absolute truth. And that, Lord, that means we can depend on everything you say. And we want to, Lord. We want to be people just like the churches, the church at Philadelphia, that hold to your word, have a correct understanding of the character of Christ and who he is and what he's done and what he promises. And also, Lord, that we do not deny your name. Lord, make us faithful like that. And anything else, Lord, that you allow us to do and have, we know that's solely your grace and your mercy. And we want to give you the praise and the honor for all that you have done already and all that you're going to do. We want to honor your name and learn how to please you every day. And I pray in your name. Amen. Now, this morning we do have our Lord's table, so the men that are serving, please come forward. But I do want to mention that the Lord's table is command of God. Uh, We are commanded to do this until he comes. But along 
with taking the Lord's table, remember it is the time that we examine ourselves. Uh, the practice of examination is in, 